0: This is Melissa Milner. Welcome to the Teacher As podcast. The goal of this weekly podcast is to help you explore your passions and learn from others in education and beyond to better your teaching. The Teacher As will highlight uncommon parallels to teaching, as well as share practical ideas for the classroom. In this episode, I interview Robin Bradica. She is a former colleague and currently an assistant professor in the School of Psychology Department at William James College in Newton, Massachusetts. In this interview, Robin shares her expertise in the area of social-emotional learning, as well as talks about her passion for running and her devotion to her amazing daughter, Juliet. Enjoy The Teacher As Supportive Practitioner. Welcome, Robin, to The Teacher As. I'm so psyched that you had time to talk with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So what do you want The Teacher As listeners to know about you? Yeah, so
1: I right now, um, I'm working as an assistant professor in school psychology, and I'm the interim program director at William James College for our school psychology program. But um, before that, I was working in schools as a school psychologist, school adjustment counselor, and special education team chair. And so my passion is still around practice, um, training practitioners, working in the field, and especially focusing on social and emotional learning. Um, I think, especially now, given the state of being and everything with COVID, um, the more we can champion kids' social-emotional learning, the better. So for listeners out there, um, hopefully you are all advocates for social-emotional learning too. And if not, maybe by the end of our discussion, you will be.
0: What are the top three things that a, let's say, classroom teacher could do to help with students' social emotional learning, especially in the time we're in right now?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, so, the first place I would start, um, and again, this is something that I would say at any time, but especially given right now, is almost doing a little bit of a mini self assessment. So, as teachers, as educators, as just adults in the lives of children, where are we at right now? There are just so many unpredictable things happening. We've been forced to pivot and change continuously. And so I think the first thing we can do before we can even begin to think about the kids we're working with is do a little bit of a self-assessment. Know where am I at and what are the things that I need for self-care just to be managing the different emotions that I'm having at this time. So I would say the first thing is think about yourself, which as adults, unfortunately, is often the last thing we do, (laughs) but it's the most important um, because if you can't help yourself, how are you going to help anyone else? So I would say that is number one. Number two kind of goes along with that. So after you really kind of think to yourself, these are the things that are important to me that I think are the skills that are necessary to have, begin to model them. So kids are going to learn best, not by what you're saying necessarily, but by what you're doing. And so the different skills and competencies when we're teaching kids about being self-aware and having, you know, self-management, time management skills, things like that, how can you model them for the kids? Um, So really, you know, being a champion of the different things that you want the kids to learn. And then I would say the third piece of it is realize that, These are not soft skills, right? So we talk about things like reading, writing, math. Those are all things that, of course, we need to explicitly be teaching in school. It's the same thing with social-emotional learning competencies. Um, So not every child is going to come into the classroom having the same background of, you know, how do you make a responsible decision or how do you work with another peer? Um, So just keeping in mind that these are skills that our kids need to learn just like anything else. Um, So I think those would be the three takeaways I would hope folks can have.
0: Check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Exactly. On that saying, right? Like you can't fill from an empty cup. It's the same type of thing. What can you do to be aware of yourself and even take care of yourself before working on it with
0: others? Cool. What does your job look like right now? So my official role right now,
1: um, I'm working, so I work at William James College as an assistant professor of the school psychology department, um, and I'm the interim program director. So right now, while I'm in the interim program director role, I'm not really doing much with school districts, but typically speaking, in an average semester, I just have some school districts that I have contacts with. And essentially when like a school psychologist might be taking a medical leave or they just have an influx of evaluations, I still go into schools um, to do psychological evaluations with kids or sometimes districts will hire me to do professional development with mental health personnel. Um, And then sometimes like parents will just hire me to come to a team meeting with them. Um, So really, it's nice because I'm not working for a district, but I'm so infused with all of the different areas that school psychologists can be working um, with kids and families. So that's really wonderful. Um, But through the college, what's great is I'm working with all graduate students in school psychology. Um, And so I'm training students to then work with, you know, pre-K through 12 populations. So I really feel like I'm having even... A bigger reach with children because each school psychologist I'm training will then see that many more students, which will then have such a greater impact. So, yeah, I find a lot of fulfillment in what I'm doing now.
0: Do you have a passion that that really helps you in your work?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, so the running is amazing, um, and I will say, especially during COVID, it was such a nice just thing for me to have. I would say. I am a pretty competitive ultra marathoner, and so that certainly has helped me both in and out of my work um, in in a variety of ways. Um, but it, it's nice to have something that is separate from my employment that I am passionate about. Clearly, it helps with my well being. Right, so if I I do mostly trail running, and so you know, when just the weight of the world is, I feel like I have so many deadlines and different things I need to do. And I have, you know, contentious meetings coming up and what have you. um, There's nothing like completely unplugging and just running in the woods. Um, So, you know, I I often, um, though we haven't done it as much lately, but, you know, pre-COVID, I had a group of friends that we would run Friday nights. So it'd be like, 8pm on a Friday night completely dark with a headlamp running in the woods and there was nothing better after a stressful week of work than just running in the dark with my friends pretty silent in the woods. So, you know, certainly from like a stress relief standpoint, absolutely. But it also helps me, you know, to just conceptualize the size of things, right? So, you know, sometimes I think professionally, personally, what have you, we'll have some type of situation that, that it might be a conflict or a problem or just, you know, a puzzle we're trying to figure out. And sometimes it can feel like I, it's unachievable. It's just too much. I have too much to do in this amount of time. And running has really helped me break it down. So just for example, this pa- a couple of weeks ago, um, I ran my biggest race to date, which was 100 miles. <laughs> If you look at a hundred miles as like, I'm going to go run a hundred miles today, that can crush your soul, (laughs) but you have to look at it differently. Like I was talking to my training partner and I said, today, we're going to view this as five 20 mile segments. And so I ran, I didn't run a hundred miles. I mean, I did, but what I did was I ran 20 miles five times. And so, you know, when I'm running, I'm thinking about work and things like that sometimes, but, you know, more so I'm able to take those skills. And then if I have like a big work project, so for example, as a program director, we had our accreditation site visit and that was like a really big thing. You know, we want to make sure we have accreditation, but I didn't look at it as, these are all the things that need to happen. It was, okay, this is the overall goal. How can I break that into smaller chunks? And so the way I'm viewing my running and tackling a huge goal in the ultra-marathoning world, it's the exact same thing that I'm able to apply to my work. And I think I'd be able to do that maybe in any profession, but I think it is nice with education because we're talking about, you know, different strategies that we can use with kids. So you know, I do it in my running, then I do it in my work. And then suddenly now I have a strategy, I can teach my students, which then they can teach other students in K through 12. So
0: it's really nice how it all goes together like that. It is the scaffolding and breaking down things and that, you know, like a hundred mile. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm still in shock about a hundred miles, but (laughs) um, can you tell us the whole saga that happened when you had Juliet? Yeah,
1: sure. So My daughter, so I was working in Reading um, at the time when I was pregnant. And, you know, it was a pretty typical pregnancy until it wasn't. And so I was 23 weeks, four days actually when I went into labor. Um, And like I said, the pregnancy was completely normal and then it wasn't. Um, So I went into early labor. Um, They were able to keep me from delivering for two days um, so that she could get some steroids to help her lungs. But essentially, she was born at 23 weeks, six days. And, um, you know, based on current medical laws, essentially, um, 24 weeks is viability. So she was born one day before baby's even really supposed to be able to live. Happy to say she's now a seven-year-old girl. So she's still here. She's still wonderful. But of course, you know, being born that early, your body's not ready for the world yet, right? And so it's actually kind of fitting we're doing this today because today's actually World Prematurity Awareness Day.
0: Oh, wow. November
1: 17th. And so she, like I said, was born and what's a little hard um, or very hard is is we still seven years later don't really know exactly why she was born early. Um, But, you know, at this point she was. So You know, we, when a baby's born that early, there's different complicating factors. And for her, um, one of the worst things that happened was that she had a pretty significant brain bleed. That's something that, you know, we have had, you know, developmental challenges and different diagnoses throughout her life, but she is in first grade. Um, and it's interesting too. Being her mom, I am—I am, I am sure—and I try to be very mindful of this in my communications with her school district. But I know I'm that mom um, <laughs> who, like you see at an IEP meeting, and you're like, "Oh, it's this one." Um, you know, my daughter has—I think it's like a 35-page IEP. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but you know, it's so it's very interesting for me, um, and I'm very open about everything with Juliet. I actually. Um, it's been kind of nice working. So I teach currently on Zoom. So my students have actually gotten to meet her because she's been home sometimes when I'm teaching, and I use her as a case example all the time in my classes. And I'm able to. It's really nice because I'm able to give my students firsthand accounts of what it's like to be not only a professional at these meetings, but what the parent point of view is as well. And I I really think that that is so helpful. And I know when I was a team chairperson in Milford the experience of having a child with special needs myself, I felt like I could just relate to the parents so much better. I could understand the parents so much better. And it really made me, you know, understanding, of course, the district's point of view, but also really being able to professionally advocate for my students um, because I went into it feeling like, I'm going to argue for the best for my daughter 100% of the time. And professionally, I feel ethically obligated to do the same for any child I'm working with. Um, And so that's really kind of what I asked myself was, would this be enough for Juliet? And if it wasn't, you know, I would try to work with the school and the team to make sure that the kids were getting what I truly felt like they needed.
0: It's amazing to watch through Facebook, the saga of this, this child. She is amazing. Thank you. (laughs) It's just fantastic. The videos especially are so much fun. And it's so, it just is very life affirming. It's, and it's, I mean, obviously a testament to you. You really should publish some of the things you've written on Facebook. Teacher as listeners. Robin would write essay pieces about her daughter and her and whatever they were going through at that time. And they're, they read like the New Yorker, the pieces. Thank you. They're amazingly written. If you were to say to a teacher, if you're going to have special needs kids in your class, make sure to do blank, what would it be?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, especially when we're talking about kids, right, with different types of complex needs and multiple needs, um, I think the best thing a teacher can do is honestly, as early as possible, ask for a parent meeting um, and just say to the parent, listen, like, I can read this kid's file. I can do this. I can do that. And I'm happy. I'm so happy to have your son or daughter in my class. I'm getting to know them but I want to understand how you view your child. I want to view your child like you do. And so in IEPs, you know, that parent concern section, I feel like is so important um, because that's the parent's voice. And so, you know, I know for me, teachers that have just asked me, describe Juliet to me. I just want to hear in your words how you describe your child. Um, That means a lot. And I know that, you know, because, know like our kids one of like 20 or 25 or however many kids are in a class and we completely understand that and you know teachers have so much that they're responsible for and I think parents really understand that but especially when you have a child with multiple needs just knowing that the teacher wants to even if they're not going to see the child the same way because obviously it's not their child but they want to understand what you see when you look at them I think that's really powerful yes absolutely and I think too something to just keep in mind, I think for educators and, and again, profiles like Juliet's are probably not ones that are gonna come across the desk every day and like she's in full inclusion. So, you know, she is one of however many students in a full inclusion setting, she does have a one-to-one aid. But I feel like when looking at and again, um, you know, general education teachers, I, I completely realize you're probably not getting a child's entire file. Um, but I think if there's for me at least when I'm looking at things, and this is something I tell my students. Even if you just see that this kid has a really thick file already when they're in preschool, just even saying to the parents, um, just simple things like, it seems like you've you've already gone through a lot with this child. There's just something like that. And you know, I had some parents where, I would be reading a report and I would see a mention. I had one student, I remember specifically, that had a 10-month NICU stay. And I was working at the med- in the middle school at that time. And I, I said to the parents, and I was like, I just want to comment. Like, I saw that your child was in the NICU for 10 months. So I understand you've, you've been advocating from day one. And, you know, they were kind of surprised I brought that up. But then we're saying, you know, nobody's ever really pointed that out before. Yeah. And so just little things like that that are so easy to gloss over. Um, are just, you know, that that's the parent's story. And, um, you know, having a child with complex needs is a traumatic experience for parents, too. So going back to that social emotional piece, um, if the parents aren't, you know, completely where they could be, you know, now you have people who have experienced trauma, parenting kids who have higher needs, which can just make, you know, the entire family system a little bit more difficult, especially with those families, like, what are the different ways that you're interacting with them. If, you know, there is a contentious parent communication, how do you get to the meaning behind that? Is there um, like an adjustment counselor at the school involved? Things like that. Just um, because, again, it's not the easiest thing to do to parent when you're experiencing trauma yourself. Um, and so just always kind of keeping that in mind, not just for kids of complex needs, but for any type of, you know, system and, I guess, anything that's happening in society that could be leading to parental trauma, right? Like right now, even with COVID, you know, people losing family members, being nervous about them themselves. So right. I think that's always something that's hard to be thinking about as an educator, especially when we talk about, you know, trauma-sensitive schools and universal design, we're really thinking about working with the kids. But I think the more we can also be thinking, well, what are going, what's going on in our communities? Are these things impacting parents too? can just make better relations all around. And when teachers and parents are able
0: to collaborate,
1: I think that, you know, kids can just thrive so much easier.
0: Absolutely. In your work, what are you Zooming in on right now?
1: Zooming in! I am, well we're looking at moving towards the spring semester. So, um, yeah, right now from my work, um, the focus is really trying to, right now we're not sure if we're going to be in person or remote. Um, so, just kind of planning both ways and, you know, just making sure that the needs of our students are met, that they're able to, you know, we want our students to be highly functioning, like, and feeling good about the program so that they can go to their field sites and be helping kids and and, you know, we still want to make sure it's so important as school psychologists that they gain all the skills and competencies necessary. And so really as a graduate program, assuring that we're providing those experiences in a remote environment is paramount to what we're doing right now.
0: Yeah. And do you focus on testing and the actual counseling piece or just on the counseling
1: so we teach, so I don't
0: actually teach either the testing or the counseling classes, but as a program we do. So,
1: you know, there's 10 domains that school psychologists need to essentially have competence in. And so we have classes that focus on all of them. So I personally um, teach first year seminars. So our first year students who go out into the field, um, they go out to their practicum sites and then they come back um, and have on-campus supervision. So I'm an instructor for that And then I teach the behavioral assessment class. So I get to teach the students how to conduct an FBA and write a behavior plan. So those are the classes I'm specifically teaching in the spring. But yes, programmatically, we teach students how to do instructional assessment, cognitive assessment, social-emotional assessment, counseling, um, consultation, group counseling, all different types of things. Wow. Yep, yep. I had no idea it was that involved. Oh, yes. It's a, it's, so it's a specialist program. So they receive a master's degree after their first year, and then you can't practice, though, until you have the specialist degree, which at our program is a CAGS. Um, so, yeah, it's, I believe it's a 66-credit curriculum um, that our students have to go through.
0: Is there any one quality that makes a good psychologist or school psychologist?
1: Yeah. So I think there's probably many qualities, but one of the qualities, and I laugh because I bring it up probably every week to my students, is flexibility. You know, right now with COVID, they've had to be so flexible. Like things just are not how they expected at all. So I would say flexibility is essential. Um, and patience. You know, kids are going to throw anything at you, especially when you're doing more counseling. But even when you're doing assessment, you know, kids are unpredictable, and that's part of what makes them so fun, right? But at the same time, it keeps you on your toes. So I would say flexibility and patience, like I think for probably anyone working with children, for school psychologists, I think are very essential. But also I think the other thing um, that school psychologists really need is to be able to, so with, you know, all t- teachers, of course you want to be able to work with adults, but I feel like for school psychologists, it is so essential because, um, you know, being able to really develop collaborative relationships with other professionals is crucial because you're only going to see so many kids. You, if you really want to make an impact, you do that. By collaborating with teachers. Um, and so, as a school psychologist, if you can develop those partnerships with teachers where you're really working together as a team towards common goals, you are going to have such a greater impact and influence than if you're just a person in an office working on an island.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> are there any tips on how to, when you're reporting that data to parents and teachers, how to make it, like you said, when you're working with adults, how do you make it so that it's understandable, it's not overwhelming, and that it's really holistic about the child.
1: Yeah. So I think the two things I would recommend, and this isn't, you know, and like special education teachers, they do the achievement testing too. So it's very similar um, as well. But I would say, try to avoid jargon. Um, So if you had to go to graduate school to learn this word, you probably don't need to use it at a meeting and try to not focus on the scores, right? So you're talking about a child, you're talking about strengths and weaknesses. You have scores there to kind of supplement the discussion. And, you know, maybe if there's a question, you can clarify by giving an actual score, but you're talking about a child, not a score. Um, So I want to know what this child really excels at. And I want to know what this child struggles at, and then how I can predict that will play into the classroom. So it's one thing to know that a child is struggling with... um, Things related to processing speed. And it's another thing to directly understand how that might be influencing reading fluency, right? So I think the more that you can just be saying, this is the child, these are their strengths and weaknesses, and these are the areas that might be impacted by that, I think goes a long way. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're looking for, right? What do we expect to see in the classroom, and how can we make this child's experience better? So, you know, regardless of the outcome, and that's something too, even if a child's not eligible, there's a reason they were referred for an evaluation, right? Somebody was concerned. right? At a minimum, what are some different things just through general education that we could do as an intervention for this child? Um, because again, someone was concerned and that's valid. So let's, let's understand why there was a concern, even if they don't qualify, what interventions can take place? Because at the end of the day, the goal is for every child to succeed.
0: So what is your favorite movie and why? Okay, so... Can I have two or do you want me to pick one? You can have two. (laughs) All right. Well, they're
1: so different. Um, So my like favorite movie ever since I was like a teenager um, was the movie Empire Records. And I just like it because it is, well, I love music and it's just so silly. Um, And, you know, it's just kind of one of those, like as a kid growing up, I thought they were like the cool teenagers that worked at a record store. So I just, that makes me think of like, being a kid and wanting to be like the cool older kids Uh, but a movie that I actually really like um, which is funny because it it doesn't seem to mesh with my personality is The Departed. Um, I think (laughs) it's probably because Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon are both in it Um, but I don't know I I really like anything Boston um, and so I just I don't know I love that movie I think it's such an intriguing story.
0: It is it is a very good story. Mm -hmm. Empire Records wow I don't think I know of the movie. I know like Liv Tyler's in it. And mm-hmm. yes. I don't think I ever saw it. Yeah. I I think now you have to. <laughs> I think I will have to see that. And of course the departed I saw. That's so good. Yes. So how can people reach you if they want to learn more about what you do or Yeah, absolutely. So the the two easiest ways to reach me, um,
1: email is always very easy. Um, so it's just my name. It's Robin R O Y N dot Bradica, B-R-A-T-I-C-A dot phd at gmail.com. So that's, you know, you directly get a hold of me, that's fine. But if you more wanted to passively contact me, kind of just see what different things I'm putting out there on social emotional learning, you could always follow me on Twitter. So I know a lot of people are on Twitter. um, And my handle is just rbratica. So r-b-r-a-t-i-c-a. So I would say those are probably the two easiest ways. Um, And my Twitter is, I would say it's about 80% education, social, emotional learning, things of that nature, 15% running, and then
0: 5% bragging about Juliet. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I love that you have all of that in there. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Robin, for taking the time out to talk to me. No problem. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and have not done so already, please hit the subscribe button for the Teacher As podcast so you can get future episodes. I would love for you to leave a review and a rating as well if you have time. For my blog, transcripts of this episode, and links to any resources mentioned, visit my website at www.theteacheraz.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Melissa B. Milner. And I hope you check out the Teacheraz Facebook page for episode updates. I am sending a special thanks to Linda and Lester Fleischman, my mom and dad, for being so supportive. They are the voices you hear in the Zooming In soundbite. And my dad composed and performed the background music you are listening to right now. My intro music was Upbeat Party by Scott Holmes. So what are you Zooming in on? I would love to hear from you. My hope is that we all share what we are doing in the classroom in order to teach, remind, affirm, and inspire each other. Thanks for listening. And that's a wrap.